What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. I'm a feminist, but I make most of my money by representing the patriarchy. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically the asshole next to whom the brilliant young female lead self-actualizes. I've tried to work hard, but in terms of privilege, I'm off the scale. I mean, I'm white, middle class, male, private school educated, Oxbridge educated, atheist, live in an industrialised city in Western Europe. I mean, that's a good hand of cards. No question. It seems to me that we are suffering a sort of artistic apartheid in this country at the moment. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape their success from school and home life to the world of university drama and being inspired to become a political activist. You can comment on social media with the hashtag IQ2. Samuel West is an actor and a political campaigner who has never shied away from challenging what he thinks needs fixing. As a very vocal chair of the National Campaign for the Arts, he speaks out on the impact of government budget cuts on arts and cultural provision across the country and the shocking decline of drama and art and music in schools. And his passion seems intertwined with his acclaimed performances on screen and stage. As one of Britain's most accomplished and versatile actors, he was BAFTA nominated in his breakout screen role in Howard's End, won multiple awards for his Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, while at the Royal Shakespeare Company. He's an award-winning director of drama and opera, ran Sheffield Theatres and continues to bring authority and effortless reliability wherever you see him, from playing Geoffrey Skilling on stage in Enron to Anthony Blunt in the TV drama Cambridge Spies. Sam, thank you for coming on How I Found My Voice. Thank you're you born, You're born in London in the mid-60s. What sort of child was the young Sam? Quite serious, a bit of a wise child, I think. Fourth generation of actors, both parents, three grandparents and one great-grandparent. I've been thinking recently, I'm, I'm firstborn as well, I wonder if it's a sort of curse of the firstborn always to be involved in the past. I've noticed with my own daughter that I'm peculiarly interested in giving her a sort of working knowledge of stuff that was happening before she was born, which to her, of course, is a completely fictional time. <laughs> um, and, um, and 
by the time she grows up and thinks about her parents having sex will be a disgusting one. <laughs> but um, I, I think I, I think I was a bit a bit too much sort of eager to not go into the family business, but be accepted by the family business. How did that manifest itself? I was a very early reader, and there were quite a lot of high-profile actors around. I don't want to make it sound like a sort of lovey fest, but my parents were part of a group of recitalists who would do Sunday evening gigs, whoever was free. And we should say this is Timothy West and Prenona Scales. Yeah, I suppose we should, yeah. And whoever was free would do these Sunday evening gigs, but the people were... Judy Dench and Julian Glover and Eileen Atkins and my parents and other people. So there was always quite a lot of stuff about sort of Victorian poetry and Shakespeare. And the first play I ever saw was Love's Labour's Lost when I was six. And my dad was playing Nathaniel and he fell over a lot. And I thought that was really funny. So I sort of thought that's what Love's Labour's Lost was. I remember the director, Toby Robertson, had at one point the boys enter disguised as Russians and he put them in... Uh, space helmets and brought them on as cosmonauts to the 2001 theme. And I remember thinking how clever it was of Shakespeare to have anticipated the space race. And I, I didn't really understand the concept <laughs> of directorial intervention 400 years before. I still don't quite. And then I saw my, my dad play King Lear when I was six. What effect did that have on you? Well, that was probably the happiest time I saw my father play King Lear because he's done it four times. And as you can imagine, it's a very difficult thing watching your father play King Lear. The third time when he was about 70... Um, in London about 15 years ago, I remember nothing of the second act at all because I was just weeping. It's incredibly difficult to watch your father, especially in a performance that, and I'm quoting a review now, touched greatness. It was it was a sort of extraordinary, simple and touching end, and I, I, I couldn't see it at all. <laughs> I couldn't see the stage. It's amazing. I'm wondering when you decided you were going to be an actor. Mm. Was it even a conscious so am decision? I. No, no, I still haven't. I mean, a lot of me still wants to be a train driver, which my dad would be thrilled about, to be, to be fair. Because um, can I quote you? You're, you're quoted on yes, the IMDb film website saying, what did my parents say when I told them I wanted to be an actor? Be a plumber. Is that really true? Yeah, that's true. My mum said be a plumber first. I still think it's quite good advice. I still think it's quite yeah, good have advice. Yeah, have a trade, particularly if you're a woman. Female plumbers are cool. We employ one. And there ought to be more of them. But, yeah, definitely. I mean, I say I was a wise child. I was also a slightly sad one. I certainly grew up knowing the equity unemployment statistics rather better than most eight-year-olds. And so when I did decide to do it, which was basically after university... As well, late as that? Well, I did a job in my year out. I went to play Taplow in the Browning version at Birmingham Rep. But that was the only thing I did do in my year out. Other people went to India to discover themselves, and I went to Droitwich. Um, yes, but to be in a play. To be in a play. No, no, it was, it, was, it was good. It was good. But I still didn't know that it was something that I could make a living in. And then I did virtually nothing else at university. I mean, a bit of politics and a bit of archery, but not much apart from acting. I didn't get a very good degree. So you I thought probably afterwards. You went to Oxford to do English, is that I right? I went to Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford to do English, yeah. There is loads of student drama at Yes, too much, university. in fact. There's too much money and it's too easy to put on a show. There was one term where you could have seen a different student production every night of an eight-week term without repeating yourself. And 40 shows in one university in, in a well, term is too much. Well, as someone who was at university for some of the same time, I remember that as being very exciting and seeing all this stuff happening. And I also should say, I remember hearing about you that, oh, you know, Sam West is here. And I did wonder, was it a burden being <laughs> known? Well, because, because your That's parents bizarre. were well-known and you yeah. were in acting. I, I mean, I don't know. Where, the thing is, people said at school, like, what's it like having famous parents? And I thought, well, I, I don't know. I don't, 
I mean, I don't know what it's like not to have famous parents. Occasionally people would ask for autographs and my parents were very obliging. I don't really know what it's like. That's just who I am. But you know the way that sometimes people make assumptions and they think that you have it easy or you're more likely oh, to no get question. ahead no, I mean, because of but your that's name, true. name. That's true. I mean, I am who I am through an accident of birth. No question. I've tried to work hard, but in terms of privilege, I'm off the scale. I mean, I'm white, middle class, male, private school educated, Oxbridge educated, atheist, the child of two people who are successful in their profession and solvent and live in an industrialised city in Western Europe. I mean, that's a good hand of cards, no question. Which leads me to my next question, which is, were you quite political from quite a young age? Again, I don't remember it ever being a choice. We had nannies who my parents used to get the Daily Mail for, and then we also got the Newsline, the Daily Journal of the Workers' Revolutionary Party. I do remember at university, on two successive nights, going to the same room in Oxford Town Hall. The first was for the Nick Carter Elka Sound Tea Dance with the Ballroom Dancing Club, and the second was the Socialist Workers' Party on smashing Thatcher's Bonapartist dictatorship. It was the 80s. Yeah, I think I was the only person who did both of them. But... (laughs) I don't know, it never seemed like a choice. I remember saying to my mum when I was a sort of fairly left-leaning 15-year-old, am I going to grow up and turn into a Tory? And she said, no, darling, I think you've gone too far for that, (laughs) which which was quite encouraging. I want to take you back a step. When your mother was working on the sitcom Fawlty Towers, she played the long-suffering wife of Basil Fawlty, played by John Cleese. Is it true that he asked you to suggest insults to work into the show? Yes, I'm not sure I ever got any. The second series, I would have been... 12 or something, but I certainly didn't. I don't think I ever got anything in. But yeah, I was, I was, I was playing with words like Shakespearean insults and stuff like that. I do remember seeing a couple of the episodes being filmed and thinking, these are very fast. My mother described working with Cleese as like trying to keep a live machine gun pointing away from you. <laughs> and she points out that actually, even now, they're, they're 30% thicker than the average sitcom episode of 25 minutes. They're fast. They're so dense. Mm. I wrote an appreciation of Andy Sachs, who played Manuel when he died, for The Telegraph, and I remember thinking, I wasn't aware of how deeply this had affected me, but something about his performance, I mean, the choices that people made, like my mum sort of slightly fancying Basil and looking up to him class-wise, even though it's a drag, she's a dragon and everyone goes, oh, God, that marriage really doesn't work. She kind of made it work. And Manuel, who it would have been very easy to play as simply a downtrodden waiter, but Andy making the choice that he sort of secretly adores Basil. He's sort of in love with him. And there's a dignity of the man who does flamenco, yes. and, you know, the spine that could be straight. <laughs> there's such enabling acting decisions that it makes it a more real world somehow. And I think they were made by actors rather than comedians. Who were the other actors that you looked up to and learnt from? Were there even any performances, whether you saw them on stage or screen, that you thought there's something there that I want or I want to emulate? Well, apart from my my parents, I enormously enjoyed my father's Claudius when I saw it to Derek Jacobi's Hamlet. Jacobi was around a lot and Judi Dench as well. I mean, you know, great speakers of verse, apart from anything else. When Peter Hall died last year, they produced a little book on his principles of stress, which was given to everybody who was at the service in in Westminster Abbey, and I opened it and was flicking through it, and then the service began, and Judy Dench appeared to do Cleopatra, his delights were dolphin-like, you know, etc. The living embodiment of what I'd been reading about how to stress verse, she hadn't, I'm sure, read it or needed to 
It's just something that sort of lives in her bones and her ears, the music of it. But yeah, I was surrounded by that from when I was very small. And I'm, there are lots of things I'm very bad at as an actor. I'm not a good dancer. I don't ride. It's about that ballroom dancing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiastic dancer, but I'm not very good at it. What else are you not good at? Um, I can't ride very well. I'm not a good swimmer. I didn't go to drama school, so physically I'm not as fluent as I'd like to be. But I can read aloud, and I'm fairly good at verse. And that was not something I ever really needed to try for. It is a privilege, but it's one that I don't think anybody shouldn't be allowed to get. Do you know mm. what I mean? Well, we'll talk more about that mm. later and your political activism and your belief in social mobility. But just remind me, when did you first remember acting? I did my first job when I was about six or seven, when my dad played Edward Seventh. You mentioned my mum doing Forty Towers. Richard Osmond said something on Pointless the other day. When they, when they do questions about 1970s telly, the numbers of people who get them right are always really high. And he said, if you're on television in the 1970s, you're basically famous. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. There, was, there were three channels. My mum did Forty Towers on BBC One. My dad did Edward Seventh on ITV. And that was sort of it for them. And they happened within two years of each other. So, and I was nine. When Edward VII was being made, I was seven or eight, and I had a non-speaking part in it. I don't really remember that as acting. I remember it as kind of fun, and they made a sailor suit for me, which was tiny, and my brother was in it. He had a few lines. But the first time I remember thinking, oh, I, I'm enjoying this, and I'm enjoying pretending to be somebody else, was university, doing a play by Harold Pinter called Family Voices which I subsequently performed on radio with my parents. It's for a mother, father and son. It's the only time we've ever worked together. Why was that place such an important moment when you first did it? It was funny and I got the laughs. This is for a first-term drama competition called Cuppers in the fifth week. He put on short plays and I arrived not really knowing whether it was what I wanted to do or whether anybody else enjoyed me doing it. And I won a little award for it and thought, OK, so people do enjoy me doing it. That's interesting. I think... I was privileged to work with Pinter, I mean, on films and radio and, and on stage. I think I kind of get his register. I kind of heard it in a way that I could make sense of. I subsequently played Lenny, the violent North London pimp, to Harold Pinter's Max. He played my dad. In which plays that? The Homecoming, the Homecoming on radio. But that's an interesting thing because, you know, Lenny talks like this. Uh, one night, not too long ago, one night down by the docks. Now... That's where I grew up. I grew up in South London, and when I go and see my football team, AFC Wimbledon, I still come out talking like this. So how I really sound, I don't know. But I can play violent East End pimps on the radio. I would never get offered that part on screen. Mm. So the radio allows me to be younger, more cockney, more violent. It allows me to be somebody else. You made a huge impact straight after leaving university in your first major film role, um, the Merchant Ivory film of Howard's End with Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. It was re-released in, in cinemas a couple mm. of years ago. Mm. Um, can't believe it's 25 years since it had been <laughs> made. And it holds up really well. You earned your first BAFTA nomination playing the kind of complex young man, Leonard Bast, who stumbled into the lives of the Schlegel sisters with terrible consequences. Mm. It's a difficult role. It's all about class. How did you approach it? As accurately as possible. I loved the book. I'd read it when I was 15 at school, and I think it had become... No, it had become my favourite book. I mean, for somebody with socialist leanings to, to meet Forster when you're 15 kind of knocks you sideways. 
I loved his gradations of grey, but also his, his dogmatism. I wasn't sure he knew Leonard as well as he thought he did. He's a little bit of a cipher in the book. What made you say it's a difficult part, I think, is that I'm not sure Forster's ever met him. Mm. But I have. And I grew up in a part of South London that he was very close to. And I thought, no, I do know this man. And I know how he sounds. And I, I know his wife. His his autodidacticism and, and his desire to... Well, the spine that might have been straight is actually a quote from from Howard's End. The dignity of the animal that he'd exchanged for a tailcoat and a couple of ideas. Well, we should say there's this whole social mobility aspect yeah. to uh, Leonard and Howard's End, which seems really relevant. He's trying to improve himself, but he's crushed. You speak out so often about the shutting down of opportunities to working class talent, to people who don't have money to buy a place um, at a private school <laughs> or to pay for music lessons outside of school. Yeah. As someone who could quietly have enjoyed a very nice career and kept quiet, you've, as you say, you've come from privilege. You haven't. You make a noise. I'm interested in your, your lifelong socialism. Well, I mean, like I said, I am where I am because of an accident of birth. And there are some things that I can't change, but I have to recognize that some of the things that I've been given cheap, easy access to, like the theater and music, are not luxuries. They're human rights. They're things that make it easier to deal with the tricky condition we call human. It seems to me that we are suffering a sort of artistic apartheid in this country at the moment. I'm chair of the National Campaign for the Arts, which campaigns for more arts funding, simply because we think the arts are for everyone and make everyone's lives better. We can't think of any simpler way of putting it than that. They're not an add-on. They're not a luxury. They're not a nice if you can afford it. They're things that make us civilised and human and joyous and alive. They're getting more expensive and they're getting harder to find. And I don't see why, unless it's austerity, which I've started to call theft. <laughs> theft from the public purse, I think is what it is. We've lost a third of the funding of the Arts Council since 2010, 8,000 librarians, 720 libraries, 109 youth clubs just in London. I mean, these are shocking statistics. I've been thinking more recently, actually, that it's not about exposure so much as about doing it. I went to an amazing concert recently by a young composer called Charlotte Harding called Convo in the Albert Hall. A thousand children from Kensington, both, both ends of Kensington, the posh end and the poor end. Some of them had been involved in the Grenfell Fire. And they sang from memory a 75-minute piece, five choirs, with an orchestra largely made up of children. And it was mind-blowing. And I thought, imagine coming off after that and looking at each other with a wild surmise and thinking, how do we do that? That was more beautiful than anything I could have imagined or anything we could have done by ourselves. And of course it's important to go to proms and see people singing, you know, Ode to Joy and catch the best orchestras and stand up for a fiver. But actually the really transformative stuff is to do it yourself. Do it yourself. So I would love to see a, a belief in that from government, especially with music, which it seems to me is, is, is life, really. I know through our whole conversation, it's this, the, the two things are both central to you. They are intertwined, which is your professional career as an actor and a director, but also your activism and your politics, which kind of, they both reinforce the other. Let's talk a bit about the acting again. You've worked with the Rorschach. Can I, can I say yes. one more thing Go on, about that? Please. It surprises me sometimes that there aren't more activist actors like me. I mean, there are many activist actors who stand up for things that are much more important or equally important. I talk about the arts because I know a bit about them 
and they seem important to me. But I care about a lot of other causes as well. I suspect that the anger that I feel and it fuels my activism is slightly because of when I was born, that I did have this extraordinary, and so did a lot of people who were born in the mid-60s, this extraordinary access to ordinary, affordable art at their school and in their lunch times, and, you know, the sort of things that made you go, this is for the likes of me. And the result is that our country is now blossoming with thousands, tens of thousands of voices from people telling different stories that, you know, we're just not going to hear from in the future, particularly in classical theatre. If you think about the great working-class actors we've lost recently, like Finney, and the ones that are still... Albert Finney. Yeah, you know, the people who, who we grew up thinking they could play minors or they could play Henry V, like Richard Burton... Uh, all the people who are playing the baddies in Hollywood movies now and making millions for the treasury, like like Derek Jacobi and Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart and Anthony Hopkins. You know, these are the children, Eileen Atkins, these are the children of gas meter readers, bakers, regimental sergeant majors, sweet shop owners. How come Shakespeare's now shouting in the evenings for posh people? How did that birthright get taken away? His dad was a glove maker. He's not for posh people, he's no. for everybody. Let's talk a bit about you and Shakespeare. You did a renowned Hamlet uh, when you were at the Royal Shakespeare Company. What is it like playing that role? Because you were young as well then. You weren't one of those 50-year-old Hamlets. Yeah, no, I was 35, which is a bit older than he should be. But I was, I was a fairly young 35. I looked a bit younger than I, than I did. Extremely difficult is the honest answer. There's this weird thing which Giles Corran calls great rhetorical questions to which the answer is no. I remember, I remember them asking about a particular actor's Hamlet, is this the best Hamlet ever? And I thought, no, next question. But it wasn't because I'd seen it, it was very good. But the question doesn't make sense. The, the point about Hamlet is that it's really, really difficult and quite long. And everybody thinks they're good casting for some of it, with justification. I mean, the, the wit thinks they're going to be the funniest and the philosopher thinks they're going to be the deepest and the swords person thinks they're going to be the most dashing. And they can all shine, men and women, more often um, women now, which is great. But they all fail at different points because it's a really big part and it brings you up against your limits as an actor and as a person quite fast. I remember coming off after about 120 performances, I did it 132 times, thinking, well, that first half was about as good as I've done it. I think that's, I can't improve on that. And then I completely screwed up the second half. <laughs> I thought, I'm never going to do this. And then about five performances from the end, there was a point where I, I used to do the soliloquies talking to the audience. And I always thought, if I ask the questions properly, someone will reply. I said, am I a coward? And someone in the dress circle went, yes. And I thought, oh, brilliant. This is great. So I walked to the front of the stage. I said, who calls me villain? Which was the next line. He said, me. Back of the circle. Don't know what seat. I said, Breaks my page across, plucks me by the nose, deep, gives me the line, the throat as deep as the lungs. Who calls me this, huh? He went, me. I was like, this is great. This is so exciting. I finally got into a dialogue. And then, and then um, I got off stage and the stage manager said, are you all right? I said, yeah, are you kidding? That's the most exciting thing that's ever happened. So that was good. I thought, yeah, if I ask the questions properly, then somebody will eventually answer. Because one of the things I thought about is... Um He's a thinker, and you were saying you were a real thinker as a child. Yeah, um, I, th I think too much on that. Thinks too much, yeah. and that's well, the well, heart that, of that, this. this is a, I mean, you know, there's, there's famously he says, famously the American film says, this is the story of a man who could not make up his mind. It isn't, but it is the story of a man who thinks too much. I mean, if you wanted to reduce it to one sentence, or perhaps to put a political, not spin, but to bring the political out of it, 
It's the story of a man whose conscience does not allow him to act in the way that the political situation requires him to act. And that's, in a modern dress production, very important. You know, we had a sort of Blairite Claudius who smiles and smiles and is a villain. And a lot of very well-dressed new Labour apparatchiks who applauded everything he said. And, uh, you know, it all looks very shiny and in this lovely air-conditioned Elsinore with very fine grey paint. And, and then there's this weird guy in a hoodie who goes around kicking at stones and moping. And, and you think, who's he? And weirdly, he's our guide. We don't go with the smiling, successful guy. We go with the with the mopey goth. And by a terrible irony, the mopey goth turns out to be right. Part of the fun for people who follow you on Twitter, we should say you're at Exit the Lemming, is reading about your passion. So the bird watching, the pop band Sparks. Mm. You've been seen in the mosh pit at their gigs. Yeah, many Why times. them? What, what are the keys to these passions? How do you sum up a dedication to Sparks? I've loved them since I was about eight. I should say they had their biggest hits in the 70s. Yeah. This town ain't big, big enough, enough for the both, both of us. us. It's 1975 when I was nine. They were the first album I ever bought. I've seen them about 20 times live. One of the extraordinary things they did was that they did something that I think no band had done before. They played their entire back catalogue from the beginning of their first track of their first album to the last track of their 20th album live over 20 evenings. And then they did it in my road. I live just off Upper Street, and they did it at the Angel in the south end of Upper Street. And I thought, I mean, they're a Californian band. They've come, to they've rehearsed for four months, and they've come to Islington to do their entire... And some of the songs, of course, they'd never played live. They're just fillers. They had about 300 songs to learn. And then they played the 21st album on the 21st night at Shepherd's Bush from start to finish, and it's one of the best. I don't know. I really admire their ability to reinvent themselves. Just when you think you've got their sort of silly iconoclastic lyrics right they come out with something that's operatic and then there's an amazing Giorgio Moroder produced electrofunk classic like Beat the Clock which you know still fills floors 40 years later I think they're impossible to pin down and you know they're now into their eighth decade and still touring I want to ask about your voice. You've won a lot of awards for audiobooks. You narrate documentaries. And I have to say, as someone who gets into a lot of professional performers for a living, your voice really is remarkable. You did the Just So stories, didn't you, amongst mm, other things? I did. I was delighted to do those. Tell me about how you, how you use your voice and how conscious you are of having developed it. Well, it's interesting you mention Just So stories. The first reading I really remember loving was Michael Horden reading the sing-song of Old Man Kangaroo. And his lightness of stress. Or somebody like Oliver Postgate on The Clangers, who has a beautiful voice, but very light, very thrown away, not at all trying to sell something to a child, very much talking as if, as if a child would understand, not at all patronising. And very, you know, default male, white, probably Oxbridge, but actually delivered with the intention to inform and puzzle, intrigue, not entertain or dazzle. And I remember thinking, that's pure, I like that. You're not trying to sell me something. I was brought up with a sort of benign neglect by my parents, which was very much the, the 70s fashion. 
I don't remember working on my voice, but I do remember thinking it was important. And I listened to audiobooks I did when I was 27, something like The Day of the Triffids, which I knew that was set in the 1950s and that there were certain societal pricks that the book wanted to kick against. So I made it sound a little bit old-fashioned. But now I hear it and I think, gosh, you sound posh. And I heard a, an audiobook I did of Brighton Rock about nine years ago. Heard it the other day for the first time in ages. And I sound much more like this. Only the shocking thing is I'd just finished a run of Enron in the West End. And my voice sounds so fit. It's strong and supple and limber and... It's a bit shocking because I'm not in enormous vocal health at the moment. I'm not match fit. Yeah, it's and, a muscle, uh, isn't it? It is a muscle. It is a muscle. And I lived with a violinist for several years who practiced not less than four hours a day. And I don't know any actor who does an hour's voice work when they're not working. Singers do. So now I'm not doing a play, so I'm sounding a bit, bit rough. My dad said to me the other day, oh, I realise that I have by any measure, a fairly serious voice. And that's fine when you're doing things like the Nazis are warning from history. I mean, it's not your job to be cross about the fact that six million people died. I tend to just sort of say it as neutrally as possible and let people decide. But if you have a serious voice, people think you're a serious person and you don't get offered very much comedy. And my dad the other day said, I think your career has been shaped by the fact that people know your voice as something that's very deadpan and neutral and serious. And I suspect he may be right. God, you do good comedy, yes. I don't get offered comedy. Well, that's going to have to change. Yeah, uh, I'd like to um, second that. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask about how you choose roles? Because you, you're always busy. You once said, I usually play toffs and soldiers with a sideline and mass murderers, which <laughs> yeah, I think you true. might have said some years ago. Maybe that was around the time you were doing Jack the Ripper. That's still true, I think. And I just wonder how you think about the roles you take, because there's such a debate about class and what kinds of stories are given priority, especially mm. on screen. It's all part of the debate around privilege, which you care so much about. I'd quite like it if I didn't have to murder any more women. I think probably we make too many of those stories now. I don't, on screen, have very much choice over the roles that I play. And I never play any one of my own politics. As you say, I tend to play damaged toffs. Deborah Francis White, who does The Guilty Feminist, in invited um, the company of The Writer, a play I did at the Almeida last year, on. And one of the things you have to say to her is, I'm a feminist, but... And my I'm a feminist, but was, I'm a feminist, but I make most of my money by representing the patriarchy. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically the arsehole next to whom the brilliant young female lead self-actualizes. And if nobody else wants to play that part because it's too small or too much of an arsehole, I'm free and I'm cheap. <laughs> so that's how I choose my parts. In terms, wondered... of, in terms of playing them, I think I think the same way about the parts as I do about my voice. There's a weird thing with voiceovers now. I mean, you say I do documentary voiceovers. I, t I do fewer documentary voiceovers now, although a lot of them get repeated, so it sounds like I'm busy. But in the last few years, there have been many more women and many more non-RP voices, which is great, and about time too. But there have also been far fewer voiceovers, because most documentaries are presented now. So the presenter does the voiceover themselves. Mm. And that's led to a new, plus, you know, capitalism, has led to a new thing that we're so obsessed with shocking. We're so obsessed with shopping and buying stuff that voiceovers now sound much more like adverts. They're much more of a sell. There's a, there's a shorthand in acting 
called actioning, the active verbs you use in order to get your point across. And here I might be using the word enlighten, for instance. And the ones I choose for documentary voiceovers are inform, enlighten, intrigue, puzzle, quite small, not too manipulative. But the ones you would choose for a voiceover are dazzle, excite, butter, thrill, seduce. And it's sort of poisoned our ears. I mean, I was on the Victoria Line recently, and you get to the middle bit of the Victoria Line, and, and the voiceover says, this, and there's a pause, is Oxford Circus. <laughs> it's not quite that posh. This <laughs> is Oxford Circus. I think, why are you trying to sell me the station? <laughs> What's wrong with this is Oxford Circus? Just tell me where I am. And they signed off on that voiceover. They went, yeah, that's just the amount of undersell we're looking for. This is Oxford Circus. Like, great, hooray, it's Oxford Circus. They're sort of deeply unfashionable just to give people information. You know, my favourite thing on radio is the shipping forecast for exactly that reason. I don't always understand it, but somebody does. It's jargon, but it's just information. And I suppose I think the same way about voice, that you shouldn't comment. You shouldn't try to feel. You should just play the part from that their point of view. So when I'm playing Nazis or paedophiles or conservatives, you know, I try to... Um, I, I try just love that <laughs> sentence, sorry. I'm so sorry. That was a bit cheap, but I... Uh, I, I, um, I do try not to, to comment, just play things from their point of view. And I think that's, as an actor, that's absolutely fine. Do you ever think, oh God, not another posh Aristo or a Nazi? Or do you just think the money will come in handy for the campaigning? I mean, do you ever turn those things down? I can't really afford to turn work down. So, no. I would love not to fly, for instance, in my work. I would love to say I'm only going to work in this country. But when jobs come up that are shooting abroad, which they do occasionally, I'm not in a position where I can say, sorry, I don't do that. I think those parts have to be played, and they have to be played as well as possible. You know, you've got to have antagonists. But it is weird that I never play any one of my own politics. I never play tired dads either. And I'm, I'm a tired dad now. I mean, when I'm not working, I'm just finishing a, quite a long period of unemployment. I'm basically a dad. And I think, yeah, this is quite unlike anything I do professionally. Can I ask about home life briefly? Your partner, mm. Laura Wade, is a renowned award-winning playwright. She's an Olivier award-winning playwright mm. now. She wrote Home, I'm Darling. And her breakout play was the acclaimed Posh about a Bullingdon Club-style group of privileged Oxford boys. Mm. I wonder what difference your partnership has made to your public voice as a campaigner as much as as an actor. Well, I've had to do a lot less stuff because Laura's very busy at the moment. She won an Olivier about a month ago and the phone hasn't stopped ringing and that's great. So we can just about keep the wolf from the door when only one of us is working now. So I'm spending as much time as, with the children as I, as I want to. I mean, I think when you have children, you, you think, particularly in terms of their gender and wanting to bring them up on, on feminist and, and, and non-gendered principles... We think about language a lot more. We started off by trying to use non-gendered words for people. And it was very self-conscious initially. We remember standing by the, the side of the road going, wait for the green person. And we laughed about it. But actually, there's nothing in that figure that suggests it's a man. So why should it be a green man? And now my daughter says, green person, green person. And when we walk past female firefighters or go and watch female footballers, we're about to go and see the Lionesses in the World Cup, you know, if we watch Doctor Who, she says, is it boy Doctor Who or girl Doctor Who today? If we go to football, she says, is it boy, boy footballers or girl footballers? And she uses the word child and person instead of boy or girl or man or woman. And it's actually changed the way she sees the world. 
If I want to inspire her, I can go to YouTube and show her awesome women and girls climbing or conducting or playing a piano concerto or being an astronaut, you know, which would have been hard 20 years ago. I'm thinking much more carefully about, about words in that way. And I think just try to sort of have a bit, bit more of a responsible life. I don't. Can I ask, because you talked about responsible life, have you thought about going into politics? Not really. I don't feel qualified. And I think being a backbencher must be a rotten job. Because I think some of them are so principled and having to toe some fairly horrendous party lines. I'm also not sure that with some very honourable several very honourable exceptions, that politics is full of our best and brightest at the moment. If I met a young person who was particularly brilliant, I wouldn't think, well, you ought to be in politics. I think, what's the best chance of you changing the world? I'm not sure it's by being a politician at the moment. And we have to change the world, let's be honest. You know, climate school strikes are just the beginning. <laughs> what are you going to do next? What do you want to do next? I don't know. <laughs> I, I quite like not working over the summer. Um, I very much hope that I am going to bring a play by my darling partner that I directed last year in Chichester to London. Which one? It's called The Watsons, and it's based on an unfinished Jane Austen oh. novel, which goes nuts in a sort of meta-theatrical and utterly joyous way. We did it in Chichester last winter, and I'm very proud of it because I've always liked it more than Laura did. She saw it slightly as the runt of her litter. I knew it wasn't. And when I finally got somebody to put it on, she did a second draft of it, which brought it beaming into the spotlight. And it's a wonderful play. Better even, I think, than Home I'm Darling, which just won the Olivier. So, yeah, I'd like to show that to London because I'm very proud of it and it will make them laugh and think and it's joyous. The only thing we haven't covered, and I'd love to if we have time, is the directing and mm. running Sheffield Theatres. Yes, That's it. a huge responsibility to take on. I can't think of many actors in recent years who've chosen to do that. No, Why no. did you do it? And what was it like? It was very difficult. It was the hardest thing I've done ever. And I didn't, I think, on any reasonable terms, succeed at it. It's taught me more than anything I've ever done. But it was, I think, on, on most levels... Not a success. I won't say a failure. The second season was, was successful. The first season on the whole wasn't, although I did some very exciting things. With it. In what sense wasn't it? Quite a lot of people didn't come. I put on plays because I hadn't heard of them, which seemed to me an exciting thing to do. And then the second season I put on plays because I had heard of them, and that's, that's a better thing to do if you want people to come, because I've heard of quite a lot of plays. I managed not to do Howard Barker's Victory in my first season, which would have bankrupted the theatre. That's always a major achievement for any artistic director. Um... I, I think I started having these thoughts that weren't to do with playing parts. You know, the job of an actor is to get into a character's shoes and sum up their life and play the part from their point of view. And I kept thinking about things that were about the mood of the piece or the themes of the age and or that particular scene change. And I thought, that's none of your business. If you can shut up and not sulk and get on with it, then do that. But on the other hand, if you could do a production where those were your responsibility, would that be fun? So I did, and it was... And then I discovered that it's not a very good career move. Quite a lot of directors don't want to work with you when you've directed. Which, and this is going to sound like special pleading, but I promise you it's true, and several directors who've worked with me since will say so. I'm much easier to direct now that I've directed because I love that it's not my problem. Yes. I, I respect their talent far more because I know how much difficult... You know, directing is really hard. And I love that I just go and go home and learn my lines. And play the part as well as possible and think, you know, this is a really difficult scene change. Bye. <laughs>
Let's leave it there. Samuel West, thank you so much. The producer was Farah Jasset. I'm Samira Ahmed. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on on what is it? Podcasts. <laughs> I can tell I do this I'll, I'll so often. That. Sorry, no, no. What? Hang on, wait, wait. I'm going to ask Sam to do this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. <laughs> that was so good. Thank you so much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hold up. 